You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which we meet today. For me, I'm on the Wajak country in the Noongar Nation and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Right, let's get to the episode. Today's episode is a really interesting one. We're talking about atrial fibrillation and diagnosis. Our guest today is cardiologist and electrophysiologist, Dr. Ben King, who works at Advara Heart Care. Ben, welcome to the episode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Right. We're going to talk about the diagnostic issues that GPs can have with atrial fibrillation, Ben. What are some of the different ways that atrial fibrillation presents and what are the common symptoms that people have with atrial fibrillation? Well, many patients present with symptoms and a significant minority of patients present without any symptoms as an incidental finding. In that order, the most common presentation is palpitations and really the inability to derive any pattern to the palpitations is highly suggestive of atrial fibrillation but it can be a very difficult call for a patient, even a musician. A good group also present with breathlessness and some with lightheadedness, uncommonly with chest pain. And a large patient group with AF have rather non-specific symptoms that are very challenging from a diagnostic perspective. They could be lethargy, effort intolerance without breathlessness, so on and so forth. Of the incidental findings, that there's nothing new in an incidental finding of AF that could happen on a blood pressure cuff or on a routine medical. It can happen on work medicals, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a real groundswell of patients who are now being diagnosed with wearables and most classically watches and exercise heart rate monitors, et cetera, et cetera. They are increasing in their diagnostic accuracy and in their application in the community. So that is a real landslide that we've just seen the beginning of in the last year or two. Yeah, great. It's certainly an evolving area. So traditionally, most patients, they'll have their diagnosis confirmed on an ECG. Once it's confirmed, what clinical assessment would be helpful? Like what further history and examination would you sort of recommend? I view new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in four baskets. Um, Are there any upstream causes that we need to address? What are the risks of stroke? What are the risks of heart failure? And perhaps most significantly, what are the symptomatic gains that we'd be targeting? So in that order... Does the patient have structural valvular heart disease that's driving it? Yeah. I do undertake a fairly minimal biochemical screen, but that's yield of that's low, and therefore my application of that is reduced over the last decade. And I refer to iron study and thyroid function or, or something like that. This probably also is different in the different patient groups. This, um, we can see AF in all demographics, but it's exponentially more common in its garden variety forms from mid-age and in the, into the elderly. And therefore, if a very young adult comes in with atrial fibrillation, as an electrophysiologist, I'd be strongly thinking they might have an SVT trigger. I don't think that's necessarily much of a, of a GP issue, but it's, that's the way that I think it through. And of course, you know, structural heart disease might open other considerations. The evaluating stroke risk is perhaps the best publicised issue with atrial fibrillation. We're very pleased with that because the greatest patient morbidity relates to stroke, not to the heart. The CHADS-VAS score is very robust. I would note that most people are de-emphasising gender because we're not sure that that makes a difference, certainly not in isolation, but it's very applicable. But if, if we're ever considering the risk 
of thromboembolic stroke in deciding whether to anticoagulate a person. I think it behooves us also to evaluate the risk of hemorrhage if we do prescribe and that we don't have as good scoring system. Hasbleed was based on warfarin and it has broad numeric ranges. But I think that the items on that list are worth considering. The third thing is the risk of heart failure, and that really pertains to heart rate, and we're really not very good at predicting who will end up with heart failure in in the setting of AF. It's probably fair to assume that there is some integral rate and time in which almost anyone can uh, can get tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy, but it's very variable, and we are pretty confident that if the heart rate's generally double figures, not triple figures, that you'd be safe. And those things usually are a bit less of a consideration and most of our interest is keeping the patient free of adverse symptoms and maintaining whatever lifestyle they choose. And then the considerations are rate control versus rhythm control. Yeah, look, that's a really helpful way, I think, for GPs to think about it. And I guess that sort of preempts my, you preempted my next question, which is kind of along that first topic of upstream causes. You mentioned a pretty light on sort of investigation list. Any sort of specific things that you'd, you'd like to see perhaps before people get referred along? For sure an echo, yep. for sure an echo. There are many reasons that, that the echo data is important. If they've got very significant valvular disease, then the NOACs are out and warfarin's in and we probably ought to address the, the, the valves, number one. If they've got very significant left atrial dilation, we have to unfortunately concede that our success rate in rhythm control will be worse. And if the left ventricle is impaired, then the significance of atrial fibrillation for overall patient outcomes is, is more. And in that group, we're, all, we're almost always more aggressive in rhythm controlling the patient. Uh, we have lots of science data and a fair bit of clinical data that tells us that the F patient with a poor ventricle will have worse heart failure outcomes, worse ventricular, like malignant arrhythmia outcomes if they're in AF, even adjusting for rate. Now, this is a common situation where we, we're highly suspicious of someone having AF, but it's not confirmed on the ECG. What, what's your advice in that situation? Yeah, I'm a fisherman, so I tend to talk in, in metaphors of nets. You know, a bigger net is often necessary. Historically, bigger nets have had bigger holes, and you might miss some small fish. So the metaphor of AF and fish perhaps can be extended to say, well, do, how big a fish are we worried about? can't feed a family with a, with a white bait. I am quite strict, and I think certainly around my sort of friendship group within EP, we're quite strict on symptom to rhythm correlation. There are invariably patients in whom this capricious disease is difficult to diagnose, but the diagnostic modalities are really progressing very quickly. So a halter monitor for someone who has symptoms for five hours every three months the yield clearly is low, you may be lucky. They may even have it asymptomatically during sleep, for instance. But longer monitoring is helpful. Now, historically, those longer monitors had been patient-activated only and therefore very limited and had all been with rather cumbersome uh, wire connections or whatever else. There are now a multitude of longer monitoring systems, those that have automatic detection systems, uh, some that are just electrode-based, not necessarily sticky, but electrode-based, as well as wearables with regulatory approval I should add and so we we chase a lot I'm not in the practice of anticoagulating people on the suspicion someone comes in and they're the perfect substrate for atrial fibrillation and the symptoms all fit they don't get a prescription for anticoagulants or any arrhythmics just yet if they have a halter with 12 seconds you know of of an atrial run I think 
statistically that does predict a higher risk of them having AF, but it's not AF. And given that there are a multitude of data sets that say very brief AF may not even be a problem for stroke, unfortunately, I don't have a number for that. We, we don't know how much you need, and it's probably different for different people. But, but I, I don't think that we're well justified in acting on precursors or non-sustained versions, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get into this conundrum of people get it on the wearable watch device, but they don't show it. You know, how much stock do you pay into that? Or say, you know, so you see someone with a watch that says they've got it and then you do a halter and it says they don't have it. Well, you know, it's a paroxysmal disease. They could both be right. Well, it's not always a paroxysmal disease. It's commonly, particularly early on in its natural history. I don't have the same respect for all the wearables. I mean, some of them have been rigorously tested by FDAs and TGAs, et cetera, et cetera. And those ones do tend to record one lead of ECG so we can have our own eyes on them. The ones that are based on pulse wave form, I think are very unreliable. And there's several reasons for that. But suffice to say that the, that the pulse wave form will be very variable with abnormalities different timings or, or, or different rhythms. So I think that they're helpful when things are normal, which unfortunately for we as clinicians is very un unhelpful. The ones that record electrical data are, are going to be much better. Very good. And what an interesting time we're in with this stuff, isn't You know, it's evolving so fast. You mentioned before the, the course of AF, Ben. What do we know, say, if we diagnose someone early on in the course, we pick it up really early, what, what's that likely to mean over the course of, say, a patient's life? There's an old adage that AF begets AF. And that adage existed long before the science backed it up, but it did back it up in that there are changes within the atrium as the burden of atrial fibrillation extends that undermine our control of, of the rhythm. You know, on an echo, the atrium looks bigger. And at a microscopic level, there is microfibrosis, which of course has a role in, in, in interrupting the electrical waveforms we assume maybe even causing little triggers and firings. These are somewhat controversial in clinical practice, but I think everyone knows confidently that the long-term atrial fibrillation patients can be devilishly hard to achieve and maintain sinus rhythm, and therefore the efforts may be less justified compared to rhythm control zone. Some patients present paroxysmal early on and some patients, for reasons I couldn't explain, are persistent, that they don't revert spontaneously. Nonetheless, for instance, be it antiarrhythmic drugs or be it ablation or other, the results in maintaining sinus rhythm are superior early on. Now, that doesn't always put us off one way or another. If someone is highly symptomatic, then having a sensible and safe and somewhat determined approach in trying to improve their symptoms is what we're all about. If someone is genuinely asymptomatic and in a patient in whom maybe attempts are hazardous, oh, frail kidneys aren't great, hearts, you know, hearts are thick and stiff and, and, and whatever else, then those decisions are relatively straightforward. It's the young asymptomatic with whose heart's pretty normal that I find is a harder decision in, in that space because if you say, look, just take a beta blocker and you don't even need a blood thinner because you're young and well, uh, they go away for two or three years, it, it might be too late to change your mind and therefore you, you're uh, resigning them to atrial fibrillation for many decades. That's harder. And certainly I guess that's the perhaps the role that GPs fill in in terms of watching those patients if they do go away with one static plan that, that needs to be adjusted. Yeah. 
in that patient, I have a really low threshold for a trial of sinus. Let's say they come in off work medical and they're well, and but they're being bothered by the employer. The first thing is to tell the employer they're fine. <laughs> and, the, and the second thing is to say, look, I, I think I see that there is an exceptionally low risk in you having maybe two months or more of blood thinner, trying an antiarrhythmic and a cardioversion, and then you tell me if you feel any different. Now, it's a biased evaluation, but symptoms are biased. That's how patients are. Okay. And look, last question, Ben. I guess it relates to thinking around other things that can sort of look like AF. What are some of the other sort of challenges that sort of surround fibrillation, particularly in terms of differentiating from other heart conditions? Well, uh, other arrhythmias, I mean, the, the great mimics, I guess, are uh, ectopy and atrial flutter. Ectopy from either chamber, I should say. The thing about atrial flutter is that there will be some sort of pattern, some repetitive intervals. Now, in many ways, they're similar. The thromboembolic risk is similar. It's probably not the same, but it's similar. The, the medication choices are similar. One of the great differences is that the success rate of ablating a typical atrial flutter is really high. And unfortunately, not 100%, but it's really high. And the procedure is less involved and less, less risky. And therefore, if we get it, and it, we're much more confident to say, I don't think that that problem is still here. And therefore, potentially, we could stop your anticoagulation. There is a problem in this association between flutter and fibrillation. It's worth keeping an eye on things, but that's one major differential. I should add, it's often worse tolerated and, and harder to rate control. Ectopy is a, perhaps under-recognised a little bit, but, but it's a really common reason for patients to report irregularity and they may, not, may or may not perceive pattern, in which case everything sounds and fits like AF, but that's one of the great reasons that I don't want to give the anticoagulant off the bat because it's not associated with stroke. There's a different workup for that. Perhaps that's, that's one of your other podcasts. But, and then the non-specific symptoms, the, the symptoms of effort intolerance and breathlessness and, and, and lethargy. Well, there's a huge host, and I guess in our community and in this demographic and this patient biological group, things like heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or uh, any of a number of other. Ben, that's just been ever so helpful. You know, we've had a really good discussion on some of the great considerations for diagnosis of, of AF. I'd invite listeners to stay patient for our next episode where we talk about the management of AF. Ben, thanks for, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.